Let me pray. God, I thank you so much for the space. I thank you so much for the space that's so full that we need our kids to go before people can have their seats. And I thank you for our kids that are going to amazing, loving, thoughtful, God-fearing teachers. Lord, may they learn about you, your grace, your truth, your holiness today. And God, I thank you for the resources in many ways that we give to you to serve your vision for your glory with this church. And help us to do this all to your glory. And God, help us to hear your word this morning, I pray in Jesus' holy and awesome name. Amen. Amen, amen. Welcome, welcome everybody here this morning. Uh, for those who are maybe here for the first time or for those that have been here many times, you're all very welcome. I'm sure there's people that I will miss here, but I need to mention one person, Laszlo. Where's Laszlo? I saw him at the back. Laszlo. Some of you may know Laszlo. Laszlo was that first Presbyterian years ago as like an intern type pastor and then went back to Romania. Yeah, I wear my collar every Sunday. <laughs> I just forgot it this Sunday. So welcome, Laszlo. <clears throat> so welcome, everybody. But at Laszlo, it's so good to see you again. And just from a neighboring church down the street. So yeah, you're all welcome. Uh, Paul was talking about weather um, as he came in. You know, you see the good and the bad. Is it getting colder? Is it fairly mild? Um, Fiona and I were in Abu Dhabi last week, so we didn't quite have the cold weather you guys had. But... I need you to feel sorry for me because I've come back with an injury. Can you see the bump? Water slide injury. <laughs> I hit my head in a dark spot on a water slide, so I'm feeling a bit tender this morning. No, not at all. <clears throat> um, it's so good to be with you, and wherever Zhenya is seeing us or not, it's so good to be with you as well, Zhenya, uh, and I will try to speak slowly for our amazing Ukrainian friends. So we're in this story of Nehemiah right now. And last week, for those of you who are with us, uh, you know, once a month we stop preaching and we reflect. We read a bit of the passage of what we've been studying and we let the Holy Spirit sink in what he's been teaching us over the last number of weeks. And, and we did that last week. And this week we're jumping back into the story. We're jumping into chapter 4. And every time I get back into this story, I'm so, I'm so thankful for the Bible, but the book of Nehemiah is so practical, so relevant to the world we're living in right now. There's so much to dig into it and take out of it. So I would really encourage you again and again, read this book as we teach through it, because there's so much that God has said through Nehemiah for us. So, so far we've heard, we're going to be diving into chapter 4, so get your Bibles open. It'll also be <clears throat> coming up on the screen as well. But so far we've heard about um, God opening Nehemiah's eyes and being challenged about God opening our eyes to the brokenness in the world around us. Do we see what, how God wants to work in the world around us? And then we saw that Nehemiah's response was to take responsibility for the situation in his world. 
not to blame it on generations past, not to blame it on the authorities, but to say, God, I confess my sins. I take responsibility for this, and I'm going to act out on this. And this is so important because it's so contrary to the reality of our world today. I guarantee for most of us, most of the time, if you're in a predicament, in a problem, it's somebody else's fault. <laughs> it's your parents' fault. It's the authority's fault. It's the way that person spoke to me or the way that person did this to me. But Nehemiah repents and he takes responsibility. And then he responded. And he responded by taking a huge leap of faith. He worked for the king. The king was his master, or actually he was really a slave to the king. And yet because God put this burden of Jerusalem on his heart, he went to the king and basically said, can I have some time off? Can I, can I quit my job and can I actually go back to my people and serve my people and rebuild my town? That was a huge life risking ask and yet the king responded but this is such an important thing for us because the reality is if God's speaking to you today in small ways or in big ways I guarantee it's to call you into a step of faith beyond your strength and beyond your comfort zone but then we remember uh, Nehemiah was like Boyd. He was, he, was, he was encouraged by the response of the king because not only did he say, yes, you can go, but he also said, I'm going to help you get there. I'm going to help you do what you need to do. And so Nehemiah went to Jerusalem. But he didn't just jump in. He didn't just come back and say, I'm here. Let's go. Follow me. No, he stopped and he watched and he waited. And then Finally, he spoke to the authorities there and he said, this is what God has called me to do. And more importantly, this is what he's already doing. Listen to how he has got me here. And we're reminded through the story <clears throat> that faith needs wisdom. We need to take time to watch and listen. But faith also needs requirements, Nehemiah, or sorry, in, um, encouragement. Nehemiah told the story of what God's already doing. And then they started the work. And the big thing a couple weeks ago was faith <clears throat> needs action. We don't just pray, God, you do it all. He said, I'll do it, but I want you to step into it. And so as we enter the story today, we're on Nehemiah chapter 4. And, and what we're going to hit is the reality that faith serving God always brings opposition. You are going to run into challenges. You are going to run into problems and not everyone's going to like how you're following God, what you maybe want to say or even how you want to listen. But opposition comes in a whole bunch of ways. And just to give you a quick geographical perspective here, this is how opposition came to Nehemiah. The three kings around him did not, or the three rulers around him did not like him. So first of all, there's Sanballat, it's a great name, eh, the Hornite, and he was the leader of north, uh, in the north, northern, uh, sorry, north of Jerusalem in the area of Samaria. And then there's Tobiah, the Ammonite, and he led the area east of the Jordan. And then there was Geshem, 
the Arab, and he most likely, we don't know for sure, but most likely led that area south in Gaza and south of Jerusalem. And these three guys and their people and their armies did not like the idea that Jerusalem was going to be rebuilt because a strong Jerusalem threatened their power and threatened their authority. So what did these three men do? We're going to dive into the story. What did these three men do in opposition? How did they come at Nehemiah when Nehemiah was following the ways of God? Well, I think this is really important. First, they ridiculed him. So we're just going to read through a few of these things. But it always starts with ridicule. It doesn't start with an attack, and we know this here. Nehemiah 2.19 says this. But when Sanballat, the Hornite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Aram, heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? Just planting that seed, planting that question. And then it goes on to explain further, if we jump ahead to chapter 4 in the next slide, what this ridicule and what this questioning looked like. Nehemiah 4, 1 to 3. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. Again, he ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore the wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? And Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what are they building? Even a fox climbing up on it would break down their walls of stone. So they ridiculed them and they questioned them. First, they questioned their strength. You feeble Jews. And then they questioned their faith. Will they actually worship? Will they actually bring sacrifices? There's been none of this for a long time here. Do you guys actually do these things? Then they question their stamina. Will they finish in a day like it's not just a day job? This is going to take a long time, guys. Do you realize how big this job is? And then he points out the impossibility of the task. You are building from rubble, and it's burnt rubble. It's useless rubble. Do you guys get what you're doing? And then as I read through, do you ever read through the Bible and put like voices in your head of some of the characters? Because then the sidekick, the guy that's standing beside him comes in. He says, yeah, you know, and, and even if a fox stood on it, that wall would fall down. Like, ooh, what a dig. But they're saying, you know, no matter what, this is pathetic what you guys are doing. I, I just picture that guy's little sidekick. You know, hey, boss, did you hear that great joke? Anyway, sorry, that was what was going on in my head. <laughs> so they question them. They ridicule them. But amazingly, in the midst of all this, the people of Jerusalem got to work. So they kept going. Because when ridicule's not enough, and we're going to get to what this looks like for us, but when ridicule's not enough, then attack comes. Nehemiah 4, verse 7 and 8 says this, But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard the, that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead, and that gaps were being closed, they were very 
angry. And they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. It goes on, 4.11. Our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to their work. But despite this, the people of Jerusalem kept going. 4.15 says this. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our work. So there's a lot going on here. But the reality is, God has put the rebuilding of the wall and the restoring of the Jews, the Israelites, on Nehemiah's hearts and now on these people's hearts because he's still got a big plan developing for these people. They're sitting on 500 years and more of promises. This city will be, this temple will be rebuilt. You will still be a blessing to the world. A Messiah is coming. He's obviously not here yet. A Messiah is coming. Remember after this, there's 400 years of we don't know, and then Jesus arrives. So God's put this on the people's heart, and they're going to rebuild these walls. But here's the reality. When God puts something on your heart or on my heart, if it's his work, Satan does not want to see it happen. Satan wants to steal and kill and destroy. In John chapter 10, just before Jesus tells us that great thing, I will give you life and give it to the full, he also reminds us that the thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy. God wants to do something great here, and this is what we're getting to. God wants to do something great here and in you, but Satan does not want it to happen. And so often in this peaceful West, we just don't see the reality of that because it's so subtle. But if God wants to do something great in you, Satan wants to steal it and kill it and destroy it because he wants the glory. But the reality is, even in your own heart, you want the glory. You want to be seen as good. You want people to honor and worship you. So your own mind is going to deceive you. Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 the reality of this. He says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the powers of this dark world. If you have surrendered your life to Jesus, and if you're seeking to follow him, you are in a battle. God has called you into life and all its fullness, but that life will bring opposition. But in Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland's even unique in the world right now. In Northern Ireland, that, that opposition rarely looks like what the Jews eventually faced. In Northern Ireland, most of the opposition we face is right in here. 
or from voices outside that get planted right in here, yeah? And first, it's just questions. What am I doing? I, I want to do this, but, but is it a good idea? Or I, I kind of feel like God is prompting me to do this, but is this really God? It can't be God because it kind of feels awkward. Is, is it really God? Or could somebody else do it? Or, or if I step into that, will I actually ruin the situation or will I make it awkward? All these subtle questions just pop into your head. And then it's ridicule. The Jews were ridiculed. We do it. Who am I to do this? That's an, an amazing question or a powerful question Satan can put in your head. I'm not a good enough Christian to do this. I'm not the right person to speak to that person or care for that person or pray. I'm useless at praying. I, I don't know how. I don't, I don't know the words. Am I going to look like a fool? In Northern Ireland, so and, and anywhere in the West, we get stuck in our own thoughts and our, our thoughts and our fears and our insecurities and our doubts can paralyze us. And we often stop right there. But the reality is attacks can also come from the outside as well. As I was thinking about, I've never had a physical attack because of my faith. Many, many people in the world have. But you know the subtle jokes you get. One uh, situation that stands out to me, which was totally just a joke, but it's so subtle. Fiona and I were in Switzerland a number of years ago, and we were there talking to a church, and Fiona was meeting a friend from Abu Dhabi, um, and in, we were separate. I was meeting with the elders, and Fiona was with her, and, and she would call herself a lapsed Catholic atheist, would be her self-title. Um, but when Fiona was saying, Paul was just talking to these elders of the church, her response was, elders? Like, what is this, Game of Thrones or something? Like, just that subtle thing. Do you realize what you just said? That's such a joke. And then she went on, and she was saying, uh, just telling them about the church and about the people we were meeting, and one of the guys who was, a, who was a, uh, an elder at the church was the dean of chemistry of EPFL University, one of the top universities in the world. And so her response was, do smart people actually still believe this stuff? Oh, oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> you know, I, I know you believe it, but you're not. And it's just those subtle things. Does anyone still believe this stuff? Have we not seen science? But crazily, that's about the extent of the attacks we get. But sadly, it's these things that paralyze us. I was actually just with a friend last week, and he wanted to explain to me what he thought of Christianity, so he showed me a Billy Connolly video. Don't Google it, but Billy Connolly does a bit about religion. And he just, like, pours it out. It's so, it's so rude. It's so graphic. It's so, not, it wouldn't be PC on our, on our recording here. But he just, you know, we're idiots. We're fools. We're ridiculous. We're, oh, we're waving our hands and all, all that. And he's like, this is what I think of Christianity. Or um, Ricky Gervais does. Eddie, Idar, Eddie, Eddie Izzard does. Or Richard Dawkins. All the problems in the world are from Christianity. It's not an attack. You're not getting punched. You don't have the wound, the, the, the uh, water slide wound like I have. But these subtle jokes and these subtle jibes paralyze us because we're more worried about our own pride, our own comfort, our own reputation, that a situation won't be awkward. We're more worried about those things 
than we are about our friends and our family meeting and knowing and experiencing love and the hope of the God who created the universe. And that's just reality. This happened to the people of Judah as well. But in chapter 4, verse 10, it says this. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of our laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. It happens everywhere. When we face opposition, there's too much rubble. There's too much, what's our rubble? There's too much fear. There's too much doubt. There's too much insecurity. There's too much uncertainty. There's too much, I can't do this. I don't know how to say that. There's too much rubble, so the labor's strength gives out. So how do we respond? And this is what Nehemiah chapter 4, this chapter is so powerful of showing how Nehemiah responded to all this opposition. And he did three things, <clears throat> as Nehemiah does. He prayed, he reminded, he reminds, and then he perseveres. He prays, he reminds, and then he perseveres. The story of Nehemiah is littered with a life and examples of prayer. It's incredible. Nehemiah 4, 4, 5 says this. As, as this opposition is just starting, he says, Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. And that sounds a bit harsh at the end, but Nehemiah is not responding. He's not reacting. He's not just jumping at them. He just says, God, we're serving you here. We trust you here. They're coming at us, and we trust you to be judge. We trust you to be just. He didn't fight back. He didn't lash out. He prayed, and he prayed. 4.9 says this, But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. And I love that, because right at the start of this chapter, it just gives a reflection of Nehemiah's whole life. Nehemiah has this burden put on him, is brokenhearted for the city of Jerusalem, and what does he do? I gotta go, I gotta, do, I gotta move, I gotta shake. He stops and he prays for four months. And then maybe more like us, when it actually comes to the day, he doesn't pray for another four months. He just, before he goes into the king, he just takes a breath and said, I'm terrified, Lord, help me. There's a great prayer for any of us. I'm terrified, Lord, help me face this. Do we do this? Or do we let opposition paralyze us? How often do, we, do you or I respond to our problems uh, by just worrying, or by reacting, or just by panicking? Or how often do you stop and sit or stand and breathe and pray, okay, God? I love 
at the start of the Lectio 365 app every day, and I've said this about different prayers, and if, if you feel you're rubbish at praying, Lectio 365 is an incredible app to give words to start the formation of your thoughts and your conversation with God. The Lectio 365 app every day, other than the Sabbath, <laughs> begins with this. As I enter prayer now, I pause to be still. To breathe slowly. To recenter my scattered senses. And in this context, what are our scattered sen sen senses, our worries, our stress, our fear? To recenter my scattered senses upon the presence of God. One sentence. God, I'm going to stop, I'm going to breathe, and I'm going to listen. But how often do we get in trouble and panic and worry and start moving? One instance that's so firm in my memory was several years ago in a really stressful time in, 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 in my job. It was coming to the end of a really stressful time, but it's like, you know when you get to the end and you see the finish line, you think you can go a bit further, you think you can, you think you can make it, and then a spanner's thrown in the works and the finish line is whipped out from underneath you and you can't make it? Well, I was in one of those moments where it was at the end and I was so tired and wrecked and stressed, but I thought it was near the end, it was going, and then I got one text. One text that threw the whole thing back up in the air. And what did I, my, I could feel my chest just start pounding, my breath getting shorter. And I panicked. And what, I was like, I gotta talk to somebody about this. I gotta solve this problem. I gotta, and I remember calling and calling and texting people, and nobody's responding in those 30 seconds that I needed them. <laughs> And I remember stopping and going, I am trying to solve this problem, and I am trying to speak to anyone but God. I literally remember that thought going through my head. And so my heart's still pounding, but like, Paul, I gotta stop, I can't solve this. And I remember I was calling people on my phone, and so I shut off the call, and I opened up the Bible app, and I went to Psalm 23. And it was funny, because often I think, you know, we've read Psalm 23 so often, it's kind of trite, we know the words. Like, is, is there power in this stuff? Well, that day, with my heart pounding and my, and my breath short, I stopped and I read, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. And on that day, immediately, I realized the power in these more than words. And I just kept reading on to Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it. 
for he founded it on the seas and he established it on the waters. Okay, Lord. And I kept going to Psalm 25. In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. I was calling. I was texting. I was trying to solve uselessly. In you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. Psalm 4, 6, 8 says, The Lord is near. It's not going to come up. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart. As I stopped in that day, none of my problems were solved. (laughs) There was still a long road to go, but God invaded that space with peace and trust and that season with peace and trust. How often, and I don't know what situation you're in right now. Some of us are in pretty great situations and some of us are in horrific situations. But how often do we focus on us and our situation and our problems instead of focusing stopping and listening for the God who created the universe. We forget always almost that God is greater. So question for us, first question of three. How do you create that space? What works for you to stop, to pray, to listen? Because it will be different for you than you and everyone else. Do you have a chair you sit in? Do you go for a walk? Do you like to run? Do you need to get out and drive in your car? Is the toilet the only quiet place in your house? Possibly. What is the space and time that works for you? If you feel you're rubbish at prayer, try to remember the space and time that that did work or ask someone because you need to find that habit and that space every day if you can or you will drown. You'll drown in the good times, let alone when the problems come. You will not survive. Those habits keep you alive. How do you find space to listen? The first thing Nehemiah does when opposition comes his way, and it's going to come your way, it's already come your way, I'm sure, and if it hasn't yet, it's coming. The first thing he does is stops and prays. And then Nehemiah reminds. He reminds the people of their God and of their goal. 
The people of Jerusalem are struggling. They're really struggling. They're in a city full of rubble, literally. And there's people wanting to attack them from all sides. But Nehemiah reminds them of what they're there for, reminds them of the promises of God, and reminds them what they're doing. In chapter 2, verse 20, he said, I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We're not just doing this. The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. And then in 4, 13 and 14, it says, after I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, do not be afraid. There is reason to be afraid, but do not be afraid. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Do you remember that? We serve a God who is great and awesome, and then fight for your families and your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. We all need people who will remind us of these things, won't they? When we're in that middle, I'm calling you because I've got this problem. I don't know what to do with it. Do you remember your God is great? Do you know you're in a battle? Yes, you're in a battle. Do you, but do you remember you're a child of the king? Nehemiah reminds and as I was thinking about us, the reality is when you're going through it, I might be the one that reminds you. And when I'm going through it, I hope you're the one that reminds me. We need to be telling the stories and reminding each other of the times that we've experienced the king of kings in the best of times, in the highest of mountains, and in the darkest of valleys. So how, question number two, how do we remind ourselves of the goodness, of the faithfulness, of the power of God. Have you experienced even once a moment of, of, of life, of power, maybe in the scriptures or maybe through a friend or maybe through a miracle? Are you remembering that story when you're in a, a not so uh, blessed place? Are you remembering how God spoke or acted or met you in those times? And are you sharing those stories? Or do we, do we remember the power in God's word? On that day, literally, Psalm 23 and 24 and 25, the reality of those words were a lifesaver and a peace giver to me. The story of the Bible equally reminds us that these are pathetic people that God just happened to use, so I'm one of those. <laughs> but also reminds us how powerful and faithful and good God is. Are you getting into the Bible to remember who he is? And are you telling and remembering or listening to other people's experiences of faithfulness? Nehemiah prayed, and then he reminded. And then finally, Nehemiah persevered with faith and with wisdom. Chapter 4, verse 9 says, but we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. He didn't just pray. He posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. He acted. 4.13 says, Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords and their spears. They also needed swords and spears because there's armies around them. Chapter 4, 16 to 23, from that day on, half of my men did the work while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and, yeah, bows and armor. 
the officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but I think it's worth repeating. Because idea, well, the worst of us or the idealist in us can do one of two things when it comes to steps of faith. The worst of us can get bogged down by those questions that go through our minds. I'm worried about this. I'm not good enough for this. What if I make it awkward? What if, I, what, if I'm, what if I'm not good enough? What if the person thinks I'm an idiot? What if I lose a friend? Those questions bombard us, and we just stop. God, I think you said this to me, but now it can't be because I don't like it. The worst of us, or the best of us, just goes, yeah, God, and I'm jumping in two feet. God told me to tell you this, and you're like, who are you? Or to pray for you. I don't even know who you are, and I'm going to hug you while I do it. Or whatever, whatever, whatever. The most ideal of us can jump in, and that's sometimes equally destructive. I told the story of John. As I'm not facing the one way, running, I hear his footsteps in the landing and jumps toward me. That was a leap of faith. <laughs> But it was a three-year-old, probably actually two-and-a-half-year-old at the time, very unwise leap of faith. We need faith and wisdom. Nehemiah didn't back out because of all the opposition, and he didn't just jump ahead. He stopped. He waited. He prayed. He talked. And then he went ahead, but he went ahead in face of opposition with wisdom. How do we persevere? How do we keep going ahead with faith and wisdom? Are we good at sharing when we're struggling or when we've seen God move in powerful ways? The honesty of that, to know you're not alone in a situation, that's life-giving in itself. That, even the experience of failure brings such wisdom. <coughs> or do we stop and pray? If you're anything like me, you're rubbish at stopping. You just want to solve. You just want to resolve. You just want to react. Do we stop and pray and say, God, I think you want me to do this, but I need to know the way to do it. I want to do it well. I want to step into this. I want to talk to that. I want to do this with integrity at work. I want to pray for that, whatever it happens to be. Can you show me how to do it well? Or what are the times that God's used you in tricky situations? What are the lessons you've learned that you can walk in and that you can share with others? How are we helping each other keep going? Or maybe it's stepping in for the first time. How are we helping each other, though, keep going when opposition comes? Because it will come from in here or from out there. Nehemiah prays. He stops and prays. He breathes. And praise. He reminds God's been in this before. This is how He works, and He's good, and He's still got a story for me and for you. He reminds the people, and then He perseveres. It's messy. It's scary. It's dangerous. They had to raise up an army and carry swords and spears. But God 
put this on our hearts. So we're going to do it. We're going to do it with wisdom, but we're going to do it. Three questions. What are the ways you find it most helpful to pray? You need, I need to make that space in my life on a regular basis, let alone those, those times when I'm facing the king or facing the enemy or facing the friend. When I say that breath prayer, but what are the ways that you make space to pray? If you don't know how, if you're struggling, talk to someone else about it. Or there are so many amazing tools out there. As I said, Lectio 365, L-E-C-T-I-O 365. It's in the App Store. Or prayer journals. Or There's so many tools. Google it. Find a tool that works for you to make space with your king. How do we remind ourselves who God is? Because when you're facing your fear or your insecurity or your doubt, you'll need to be reminded that God is greater than that stuff that's going on in your head. Are we telling each other stories, reminding each other how God has moved? Or are we getting into this incredible book that tells us real stories of great and pathetic people that he's worked through? And how do we help each other to persevere and keep going? Because opposition is here. It's here. It's there. Jesus said, if they hate you, remember they hated me first. And he was the most gentle, loving, caring, and yet truth-speaking guy. They hated him, he said. They hated me. They're going to hate you. As an aside, don't make them hate you because you're a jerk. Make them hate you <laughs> because Jesus is truth. Let me pray and then we're going to worship. Lord, I do thank you so much for your word that is true and it is good. I thank you for these people over 1,500 years of writing and more, God, these ordinary insecure, scared, passionate, faithful people that you have used by your strength and for your glory. Help us to walk those paths. We love you and we want to love you more. We hear you and we want to hear you more. And God, we want to step more and more into this life-giving walk you have for us. So help, Lord Jesus. Help, Holy Spirit. We need you, Father. And I pray this in Jesus' holy and awesome name.